the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Today, you and I sit down with John Acuff, and we are going to talk about the difference between high performers and high achievers, how to make a goal and guarantee a goal, and the problem of false humility in the church. Again, this is one of those things where John and I have, he's been on multiple rounds. We just sit down and have a great conversation, and this is the kind of stuff we talk about at lunch and in the green room and over dinner. And if you were to have a conversation with John, it would probably go along these lines, and I hope you really enjoy it and share it with your friends. Today's episode is brought to you by my free guide on four steps to engage your church around generosity. Could you imagine having a generous church that actually gave meaningfully to the mission? I can help. All you need to do is go to engagegenerosity.com to pick up my free guide on how to grow generosity in your church. And then today's episode is brought to you by Belay. If you are ready to do more and spend time on the things that actually matter, text my name, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123 to get their latest ebook, The Power of Productivity. That's courtesy of Belay. Well, John Acuff is a New York Times, multiple New York Times bestselling author, and he has written nine books. We talk about the writing process. They include soundtracks, your new playlist, the number one Wall Street Journal bestseller finished, Give Yourself the Gift of Done, and his latest, which we'll touch on, All It Takes is a Goal. When he's not writing or recording his podcast, All It Takes is a Goal, John can be found on stage. He's one of Inc.'s top 100 leadership speakers. And my goodness, we opened the conversation on this. He works so hard on his craft. He's spoken to hundreds of thousands of people at conferences, colleges, and companies around the world, including FedEx, Range Rover, Microsoft, Nokia, and Comedy Central. Those are like fun places to talk, aren't they? So John's back. And uh, listen, if you're brand new to the podcast, welcome. We're really delighted that you're here. We want to bring the best of the business world to church leaders and the best of the church world to business leaders. And uh, John, like a lot of our guests, straddles both. So welcome. We're glad you're here. Now, would you love your church to be more generous. My goodness, I'll tell you, broke thinking and scarcity mindset in the church drives me crazy. When I was starting out in ministry, we transitioned from three historic buildings dating back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries, three churches that were stuck, like stuck for decades. And you know what our budget was adding all three churches together? Uh, $30,000. That was it. So fast forward a few years, we're raising money and this guy comes along and we're building our first building together, brand new building, multi-million dollar facility. He says, I want to give you $30,000 as a donation. I'm like, great. As long as you put in a stained glass window in memory of my mother. And I'm like, ah, money with strings attached. You know what I said? Thank you, but no. Uh, We were trying to ditch the organs. Well, we had decided that already and something just didn't sit right with me. So that's one of the decisions I made along the way. We are not accepting donations with strings attached. Now, you get, you know, challenges like that all the time. People who don't want to give, people who want to give to designated funds, people who don't want to tithe, you're afraid to talk about money, all that stuff. So if you want some help, I'd love to help. 
I've got a free guide. It's called Four Steps to Engage Your Church Around Money and Generosity. And I will open up my toolkit to help you. So you can click the link in the description of this episode or go to engagegenerosity.com to get free and instant access to my guide, Four Steps to Engage Your Church Around Money and Generosity. And then I love Belay. They do a great job. And I've turned to them so many times over the years for staffing help. You know, you have that sudden vacancy and you're like, "Ah, I need someone here tomorrow. Well, they might not be able to do tomorrow, but they can often do next week or this month. And they will sort through, well, thousands of resumes. They get like, I forget what the number is, but something like 4,000 people apply to work with Belay every month. And they narrow the field, narrow the field until they have the recommended candidate for you. So this can work for you. No matter how many staff your church has or how big the budget is, there's only so much you can get done in a day. For most of us, time is your most valuable resource. My very first hire in leadership was an assistant and Belay knows productivity. They work with EAs, they work with VAs, they work with accountants, and a whole lot more. And they've got a free book for you. Maybe you're not sure, but if you want to see what you can get done, go check out The Power of Productivity. It's free. And just text my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123 to get that book for free. So Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123, and start reclaiming your time today. And now, my conversation with John Acuff. John, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. I'm looking forward to it. So when your name comes up, and it often comes up in in the best way, I always tell leaders, like, and, and this is sincere, and I think I may have mentioned this to you, no one I know seems to work harder at their craft than you do when it comes oh, to writing that. and public speaking. I would love to start by diving into your disciplines, your current disciplines, when it comes to writing, speaking, and preparing to give a talk. Yeah, so it's an it's an interesting question because I'm in the midst of um, I've got a four hour one I'm doing in a couple of weeks for clients. Four hours, so talk. it'll be a forty five minute keynote, three hours of me taking the entire team through like a breakout. So it's an expansion wow. of soundtracks. This book I wrote about mindset. Yeah. So in a situation like that, I start to gather the ideas. I start to gather them. I'll go, okay. What do I want to accomplish in this? What do I, where do I want the audience to be going as we talk about this? Which, you know, where does there need an activity? Where does there need humor? Where do I need to, I think about a speech like an accordion, like you can constrict it and expand it. And so I'll go, okay, where does this need more space? Like this is, there was too, it was too long between jokes here. That was a dry, like I brought them mm. through a desert. I don't need a desert. Okay, I need some humor in here. I need some story in here. I need some application here whoa, I did too much here and I know they're going to feel overwhelmed if I give them, here's 10 easy things to do. Like nobody sitting there wants 10 easy things, you know? And so like, where do I need to dial it down? Where is my enthusiasm adding too much content? I would say, you know, X amount of years in, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm leaning into letting a speech breathe, where it, it takes courage to let a speech breathe. I think a lot of times young speakers, new speakers overfill it because they're afraid they won't have enough value. And so I'm learning now to go, here's an idea. Let's talk around this one idea. Let me let you and the audience think about it and give you space. And so that's kind of how, from a speech perspective, that's how I start. But the big thing I'm doing now is putting a priority on thinking. Like I'm really Mm. deliberate about thinking. I I read this book, The Road Less Stupid by this guy, Keith. I'm reading it right now. Was it you who, somebody, you told me to read it. Okay. So like that idea that we don't 
put a value on thinking. And then I'm listening to all this old school stuff like um, Earl Nightingale and all the kind of the classics that I never listened to from like the 40s. And they have these audio collections that are like 15, 16 hours on Audible. And a lot of it's about thinking. And I realized I'm moving so quickly, I barely give myself time to think. Mm -hmm. So in the month of June, I set a thinking goal. And in like, it's August when we're recording this, I have a thinking goal and I'm writing down like every hour that I, that I've put toward thinking, um, I write it down. I've got it in my notebook right here. I'll show, I'll show you the visual for people watching on YouTube, but you can see like, that's my, that's my thinking hours. Like, so I know, I know that I'm putting time against it and my ideas get better. And it also takes humility to think because it means I don't know the answer. And so, and I need to stop and think about it and so that, yeah, so thinking has changed my life. The idea, like, so I'll come up with a topic and then go, okay, if, you know, here's an example. I, I wanted to do an exercise of why don't people finish goals? Like, so mm. people ask me that all the time, and I really hadn't spent a thinking hour on it or two hours on it. So I wrote that down. I came up with probably 30 on my own, and then I put it on my Facebook page, and then I started mm. to gather them. So now what I'll do next is I'll start to categorize them. I'll say, I'll come up with 80 ideas and then I'll shrink them down to five. People can't hold 80 in their head. Are there five? Do I see, you know, consistency? So yeah, that's kind of part of my process is it takes a lot of time. Yeah. Are you following his method for thinking time, which I'm going to paraphrase. You've studied him. I'm reading him. He turned out, uh, the book turned up on my Kindle. So basically I read it on airplanes when we're taking off or landing, right? You can't really work online. So anyway, uh, I think it involves sitting in a big chair with a legal pad, like a yellow old fashioned legal pad with a pen and basically all distractions off. Your phone's not in the room. And you just give yourself one or two questions to think about for an hour. Is that about right? Is that what he's yeah, saying? So for me, that's about right. I mean, yeah. the, the only change I'd have to that is I've started to collect ideas in a different way where if I have an idea while I'm working out or if I have an idea where mm-hmm. I'm out and about with family or friends, I have a Google Doc that says these ideas are awesome. And I titled it that because I want that positive reinforcement. So it's not, you know, ideas to think about. These ideas are awesome. And then I just create a running list. And then periodically I, I move them to the right category. So I go, oh, that was a real, that was a book idea. This is a question I have for Carrie. So I have 10 or 12 other documents that they'll go live into. And so I just... I got this sense that the only time I, the only way I'm able to write what I hope are good books or give good speeches is if I spend lavish amounts of time on my creativity. Like Mm. I said to somebody the other day, you can tell when an author has written a book with their hands, but not their heart. Like you can just feel like, oh, they, they weren't in this. Like Mm -hmm. their heart wasn't Mm -hmm. in this. It was a great topic and they got paid to write about the topic, whatever. But like, and it's technically true, but you go, but it's, they're not in it. And they wrote it with their hands, not their heart. And so for me, in order to write something with my heart, I have to treat ideas like diamonds versus like rubble. And so I have to spend the time and go, here's an idea I heard, here's something like, and so as I'm listening to audiobooks, as I'm doing all this, I'm trying to treat the ideas like they're worth something and then get them in the right place. To not be an idea hoarder. There's a lot of leaders that are idea hoarders. They have a million, like... An idea in this notebook is worth zero. It's mm. we're in this in this setting, it's worth zero. When I get it out of the notebook, when I start to shape it, when I start to share it, now it starts to have a lot of value. I had fun collecting it. It's great. 
But until I share it, until I do something with it, it doesn't have its full value. So I'm really a geek about ideas and about thinking. Of course you'd put it in a notebook. That makes sense. Because you, you've been like Mr. Notebook for years yeah. and years and years. And I find that more exciting. I haven't obviously executed on this. But what I have executed, and I want to ask you this next question. It occurred to me, you know, I've got a pre-digital memory. I remember when you used to stare at the ceiling tiles or like at the clock to watch secondhand turn because you were so bored because there's yeah. nothing to do. Like, I remember that. Anybody under 30 doesn't remember that. But if you're over 30, you remember a bit of that. And I remember a lot of that. I was getting really concerned earlier the summer of 2023 that my attention span was shot. And I found that. Like, I started reading on my month off and I... I was finding it hard to like stay focused for two or three pages. So then I picked up Tom Holland's Dominion, which I started about a week ago. It is thick, man. It's like one paragraph a page and it goes on. There's no pictures. Oh, there are pictures in the middle. But, you know, yeah. like it is it is a tome. And now I can do a half hour, no problem. Did you have to retrain your mind to sit still for that thinking time or... Was that process easy for you? What are you doing? Some hacks, tricks? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm constantly training it. So it wasn't mm -hmm. I retrained it and then I got I got it back. But I am paying attention to like, okay, I can scroll Instagram Reels and 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 devour those, and I look up and it's been forty minutes. And so part of you know when I think about the things I do to stay focused, um, one, I give myself a ton of grace. So I'm not going to beat myself up for getting distracted. The odds mm -hmm. are stacked against you. Mm -hmm. I say this to people all the time. There's 30,000 of the world's best developers working to get your time. So like the odds are stacked. Like you should never go, it's so weird. Instagram's so sticky. No, it's not weird. They have PhDs on staff who go, how do we make Canadians who are redheaded in the Toronto greater area spend more time on this thing? Like it's uh -huh. not like the odds are against you. So I do things to what I would call even the odds or stack the odds in, you know, in my favor. I don't bring my phone into my bedroom at night. I charge it in my yeah. office because I Same. know I'm going to, I don't bring it. I don't bring my phone to transition moments. So a transition moment for me is I go run. Um, I had a great workout and then I turn on the shower and I stand there in the bathroom looking at my phone. And next thing I know, the water's been running for 11 minutes and I don't know where yeah. the time went. So I have a hard time making transitions. I leave the phone in other places. But then there's things like I read with a pen. So if I'm reading a physical book, I have a pen and if I need to stop because I got distracted by something, I draw a little circle in the margin where I stopped and I go, okay, wait a second, what's going on? And then I pick back up. So I don't go, oh, I couldn't finish this whole page. Like I'm giving myself little ways to move forward mm. and go, I moved the page forward. I moved, you know, um, and, and so I think little things like that help me. And then the, you know, the more time I spend reading, the more time I spend listening, the easier it gets. So I listen to, you know, when I'm working out, I listen to probably 15 minutes of a sermon and 45 minutes of an audiobook that's positive and motivational. And I'll listen to that same audiobook four or five times if it's a good mm. one. And so I'm I'm constantly feeding myself that I'm a, I always tell people I'm a naturally negative, pessimistic person, like cynical. I grew up in Massachusetts. Maybe it's because I'm from Boston. I don't know. <laughs> but I I don't start positive. I've just tested positivity and I've tested negativity, and the ROI of positivity is so much better. So I don't, I don't starve my doubts and my fears. I drown them. Like I drown mm. them in other things. So when somebody tells me I'm really distracted, it's hard for me to focus, um, or I'm really negative, 
I kind of look at it like if you didn't eat all day, at the end of the day, you were like, oh man, I'm so hungry. I don't know why. It's like, I, I know why. Like, I know, I know <laughs> no why. Like, yeah. you didn't eat. And it's the same thing with positivity or focus or effort. I'm really trying to practice them. And then I feel like time is the only honest metric. You can say all you want, but until you're putting time against something, it's, it's just fantasy. So if I, if, if I want to write more books, I have to throw time at it. If I want better, stronger ideas, better speeches, better ways to help people, I have to throw time at it. And often time alone, time that's focused, time that's deliberate. And so I look at it like that. But when you find something you love doing, like the thing for me, no one wakes up and goes, I want to be disciplined today. Or today I'm going to have grit. Today I'm going to have persistence. That's not how life works at all. What happens is you bump into something you kind of sort of like, and you want to give it a little more time. And so for me, when I started blogging in my mid-30s, I liked it. And I thought, oh man, I like this. So I didn't say to myself one day, I need to start getting up earlier and watching less television. No, I found something I loved. And then I looked at time like a log and I wanted to throw it into the fire, make the fire even bigger. So I always challenge people like, find something you love so much that Netflix becomes boring. Like what? Mm. That's the goal. Like Netflix, like I still will watch TV. It's not like I'm against TV, but like when you've got something you care about, other stuff loses its shine. It's not that I became so deliberate. I don't scroll as much now or whatever. It's just that I thought, man, if I write more, I get to write more books. And that's the greatest thing in the world. Like, wow. And so then I just started throwing hours at it. That changed my life. I want to go back to uh, the quality of ideas too, because I think thinking time can really help with that. Like sitting there for 30, 60 minutes with just a pen and paper, no distractions, working on ideas. One of the things you get a lot of books sent to you as I do. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's really alarming me, either I'm becoming more critical in my eye or the trend is happening, but I find a lot of stuff gets published that feels very superficial. In other words, Somebody thought about this for 20 minutes, turned it into a book. Or as a friend of mine says, could have been a blog post, right? Like, but it's not a book. And as you and I have talked about before on this podcast, the more books you write, it doesn't, it gets easier in some respects, but harder in the other because you've used so many stories and so yeah. many ideas, right? Yeah. And I think Nir Ayel and, and Cal Newport both would say the ability to focus is a superpower. Like if you want to stand out, particularly in the age of AI, your ability to focus and create deep thought, meaningful thought, singular focus, following through, that is the superpower because everybody else is distracted and in the shallows. Has your thinking time or any new disciplines you have helped you focus? Because I really, I want to focus on focus, I guess is what I'm saying, John, yeah. right? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And the other thing I'd say is that Use it in the way that helps you the most. So I have a big whiteboard in my office. I'll walk up and down and throw post-it notes. Like today I have four different colored post-it notes because I had four buckets of ideas I was working on. So don't, don't chain yourself to this kind of rigid idea that you have to sit still for 45 minutes and it has mm -hmm. to be this. Like if that helps you, go for it. But if you're a you know person that needs to move around, like I need to move around, do it that way. Like I really don't care about the means. I care about mm -hmm. what gets done. So if you go for a run and come back with three amazing ideas, awesome. If somebody else goes, I set my spot, I wrote, awesome. But, you know, again, like, I think with a book, it's it's really the challenge is when the idea hasn't been tested with real people, that's where it falls apart. 
So when a book has been written in isolation, I think real people immediately go, but what about, what about, what about, what about? So like, I just wrote this new book, All It Takes Is a Goal, and there's 40 real stories in it from 40 real people that aren't me. So if I had written that book in isolation and didn't take the time to talk through the ideas, to work through the ideas, to, you know, what you what ends up happening, Carrie, is like, here's an example. You're in the book. Like, I don't know if you saw this part in the book. You're in the book because I talk about you flying your parents to um, back to see the, the Tulip Festival. I did read that. That was really cool. That has texture because that's real. And it was better than me coming up with, here's a list of some stuff people could do, which feels generic. There's like, it takes time for an idea to not feel like stock photography. Some mm. books feel like stock photography because somebody said, this is an idea, let me write about it but it doesn't have realness to it. It doesn't have texture to it. So even me using you as a, as a one sentence example goes, somebody really did this and there was real joy and life wrapped around that. And when I put that in a book, it's different than I, if I said, or if you want to maybe go to Italy because you love pasta, that's a generic idea that mm -hmm. falls apart immediately where the idea of you flying your parents back you know, to see the tool, it felt like that has a texture to it because it's real. And I think that's true of great comedy. I think that's mm. true of great sermons. I think that's true of anything you create when there's a level of realness to it. And the problem is real takes time. Like real yes. takes time. And, 40 and, stories is way harder than sitting there using chat GPT to generate 40 ideas. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. And so like, it just takes time and it takes the willingness to put the idea down and then change the idea and go, this wasn't any good. And, and again, like, I think you just have to be willing to spend the time doing it. Um, and, and my thing is I, I know that before I start writing, I'm afraid that the ideas won't show up, but every time I eventually write the ideas show up and they're ideas that like, I wasn't expecting to show up, but I got to be there to capture them. But, I, but before I start, I'm terrified that like I'm all out. I don't have any. So like I, you know, I have to sit down and do the work of doing it. Um, and then the other thing I'd say about focus carry is you have to have a goal you're working toward. Like, you nobody again, nobody focuses just because focus. Like I focus because if I focus, I get to write a lot of books. Like mm. Jen, my wife called me out on this. She was, one thing that changed me in my writing was I got stuck between books. I got stuck between finish and soundtracks. So I took too much time. I was, I got a, and then like the, the months stacked up and I got afraid of writing. If you don't do a difficult thing every day, you don't do it. It gets more difficult. I'm in that space right now. Next question. No, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. But yeah, it's been two years since my last book dude, release. You got to jump in. You got to jump, jump in. Like you're adding yeah. days, dude. You're adding mm -hmm. days to the wall. Mm -hmm. The wall gets harder to climb every time you add another day to it. It's only yeah. getting higher. And uh -huh. so I got stuck on my wife very lovingly because I love that about Tony. We were talking about your wife yeah. that she'll say true things to you. She said, you know, if you keep writing books every three or four years, you'll get to write like mm, five more. And I was like, what are you talking about? She said, well, just let's just do the math. So how many contracts can you do? And how old are you now? And I was like, oh my, I don't want, I want to write way more than four or five. And so I now had a reason to focus. Like I had a mission to focus versus going, I need to get better at focusing. So what I've seen is somebody who's got that and it doesn't have mm. to be perfect. It doesn't have to be final. Like you have to know exactly where you're going, but somebody who has that, um, 
will push harder, will lean into it, will kind of give more of it because they have a reason, because they go, and that's where like, take basketball, NBA. Mm. NBA players whose only reason was to get the money stop stop playing well when they get the money. So they mm-hmm. get the big contract for 10 million. And if that was their only reason, there's no reason. Players who go, no, I'm here for excellence. I'm here for my legacy. Like Kobe made a game. lot of money. Mm-hmm. Kobe didn't go, okay, I've made the money. Like LeBron could have retired five years ago. Like he's made all the money. Like Tom Brady had made all the money, but excellence was their goal. So they always had something to keep trying and getting better. And so for me, if you can figure out some of that, then you'll learn to focus. Well, and you know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast too, you and I were talking before we hit record, like one of the reasons retirement isn't attractive to me at this stage, nor to you, is we love what we do. Like, hey, there are days, but I mean, most days, like this is pretty awesome what we get to do. Another thing, I want to talk about experiments before we dive into goals. Uh, Another experiment new thing for you is you took 30 days off this yeah. past summer. Mm-hmm. So what did you learn on your summer vacation, John Acuff? Well, um, one, I learned I'm the source of most of the chaos in my company. Um, so <laughs> when I was when I was absent from jumping on emails, there were less emails. When I was absent from starting fires, there were less fires. Wow. So that was, um, I learned that. I learned I'm less important than I think. Um, it turns out the world did not fall apart with my 30-day absence. Um, there's a, you know, as a leader, you're like, oh man, I was hoping there'd be more, more storms. And maybe, maybe I'm just a person that has a company. Um, I learned I can do it. Uh, Mm. I learned that my creativity doesn't turn off. It just changes directions. So it wasn't that I stopped being who I am. My counselor, Chip Dodd, we talked about it before Mm. I went and he was like, you're not going to stop writing. You're just going to write different stuff because writing is healthy for you. So it wasn't that I said, I'm not going to write. It was that I kind of allowed my creativity to go in different directions and go, I wonder what that would look like. I wonder what the, you know, well, some of it went to, okay, how do I make more of this going forward? So what I mean by that is Mm. if I thought for a hundred hours in July, how do I bring that on? I think that, you know, how do I have an on-ramp? So and I'll give you an example of, of what changed. So the first week back, I got a book launch coming out in like four weeks, five weeks, stressful. Like, you know, those moments you're mm-hmm. running around like crazy. So I've been gone for a month. I come back and I feel this sense of, I, I'm supposed to leave margin. I'm supposed to leave margin. One of the other things I got from that, from that month was that um, every new possibility starts with people. Like every possibility starts with people. And I mm. am an isolationist and I don't make time for people a lot of times. And so I, I need to make more time for people. So it's the Tuesday. It's the second day I've been back. And my daughter said, my oldest daughter says, hey, I'd love to play pickleball with you before I go back to college. And so I say, well, cool, let's play tomorrow at 8 a.m. on a Wednesday. I don't usually do that on an 8 a.m. at Wednesday. Like I'm pretty mm-hmm. full. But I, because I had left some thinking time, I just shifted and said, oh, that's pickleball time. And then I did it the next week. And so finding ways to do to do that, to not so overschedule, to not, you know, to allow room for new things to happen, that would be one of the, one of the other things I learned is that I need that time. Um, and I need flexibility. That's the other thing. I, I struggle with like wanting to control everything. And I think there's a lot of leaders that feel the same way. Like my pastor, Kevin Queen, talks about being addicted to control or addicted to certainty. Mm -hmm. And so learning to practice letting things happen 
versus they have to happen in my way, in my time. Like, I mean, that's, that's been a lesson I'm continuing to learn. Was there a detox period or a withdrawal yeah, period? seven days. I was, scratch, <laughs> like, I was like itchy. Like first seven days, I was like, and my wife said, because she saw me packing, she was like, hey, it doesn't count as vacation if you read 42 like leadership books while we're gone. That's not like, <laughs> don't just try to secretly shift to a different form of work. So uh-huh. like we've been married long enough that she can tell when like, when I'm present and when I'm just working in a di- when I essentially say to her, well, I know she knows she, if she sees my laptop, she's going to know I'm working. So I'll just start to take a bunch of notes on my Kindle. She won't be able to t- like she, so like a lot of it was, I, you know, I'm going hiking, like I'm out hiking. A lot of it was, I was, I was, I cranked up how interruptible I was when I'm, you know, during a regular work week, I'm not as interruptible as I am during vacation. So when my wife, Jenny, there was one day she was like, we we're in the mountains. She said, Hey, I was just driving around. There's this massive rock in this neighborhood. It's like almost a monument. Like this is a huge rock. Let's go look at it. And I was like, Oh yeah, let's go look at the, the huge rock. So like little things like that, you could be like, okay, let's, let's go see what that's about, you know, versus I could schedule that rock for Tuesday at 8am. If you're available, like, you know, like you just go in the moment. So, so things, and then here's the other thing, Carrie, this is one of the things that kind of like broke a broken soundtrack for me. It like just ended. I used to have this idea about money where if you built a company, if you became successful, you had less time and you were stressed all the time and it was the cost of being successful. But the reason I got to take a month off was because I worked hard and I got successful in some areas of my life. I got to stop for a month because I had worked hard, not I became a slave to the work because I worked hard. So I no mm. longer believe the the lie that to be successful means you have to get burned out, you have to work all the time, you have to have a terrible marriage, your kids don't know you. Like that's a very I think persuasive idea, like pervasive idea in leadership. And so now I just it's hard for me to believe that one because I saw the opposite. I got to sh- slow down for a solid month because I I worked hard. So now I'm like, okay, where else can I can I work hard and also slow down? Like what if that leads to more slowdown? That's even better. I think one of the things, I mean, I love tracking with you, John, and John and I usually schedule a phone call every month, just 30 minutes. I so look forward to it. We have one, we're talking now, but yeah, we got week. one next week, Yeah, mm-hmm. which I'm very excited about. And you and I had a conversation about business model too, because I think you're getting at something that's really important. It's like, you know, everything I do is going to get bigger and better. And it's shocking when you come back after a month off and like you can catch up on email in a morning and there's not too many fires burning and you're like, wow, that would have taken me a month and I'm now caught up in two hours. That's been generally my experience over the last few years when I've taken a month off. It's like, that's insane. So you come back, but before you went away, we had talked about you know, cutting back on some things that maybe weren't successful because the other mm-hmm. assumption is every year I have to do more, right? Yeah. It's true of churches, tr- true of businesses. You were doing more. And we talked about it. It was an episode on this show, the John Lee Dumas episode that yeah. I'm like, give this a listen. It's just episode. a complete you counterpoint. Go, you need to go listen to that episode. If you haven't listened to that episode, I love it. Uh-huh. It was a lot of fun because we talked shop. And what was your takeaway from, from John Lee Dumas? When he was on well, my takeaway was that he had a really fun version of productive restraint. Yeah. So by that, I mean, he was willing to say, 
hey, these are the things I'm doing. This is how I want my life to be. This is this is good. Like I have a sense of enough and my sense of enough might be different than another person's sense of enough. And that's what I took. So I look at him because I know he could probably double, triple, quadruple, whatever the thing he's doing. And he's like, no, this is, this is the level. Like this is a healthy level for me. Mm-hmm. So being willing to kind of figure that out, to ask that question, to explore that, to... Like, I know a healthy level of speaking for me. I know a healthy level of writing for me. I know a healthy level, you know, but because because I enjoy it, I always tell people, you'll become a workaholic faster at something you love than at something you hate. When 100%. you hate it, you try to do less. Right. When you love it, there's no, like, every opportunity, like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and so... For me, that episode was really instructive because I think he was really practical about it and would yeah. say, hey, here's what, you know, here's what I'm doing. And then the other thing, Carrie, I think as leaders, if you don't review the stuff you're doing, if you don't look at the data, you never get to learn. And so you think everything's important. So I, you know, I, I remember from a data perspective, my team was like, hey, we, uh, we should use QR codes on your slides, like when you speak. And I was like, nah, texting is better. And they're like, just, can we, can we test it? And I was really old fashioned about it. And we put a QR code on the slide and we put the text in and the Q, and one, in one test, it outperformed, the QR code outperformed the text in by 74 X, like 74 oh, times. So like, it made me go, what else am I, you know, like where else is there stuff I'm doing? I haven't checked the numbers lately. And you go, oh, that, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't matter. That's actually, it's not doing anything. Like it's really not. And so I think as leaders, that gives you the courage to pull stuff back and go, oh, you're right. Like I had an assumption. I haven't checked my assumption in a year or two years. Like think of all the assumptions leaders haven't checked since COVID. Mm-hmm. Like, we, I think you and I talked about this. I think part of the challenge is that people are getting burned out right now because they're working double jobs. So during COVID, they had to pause their normal stuff and pivot and take on new stuff. Well, mm-hmm. guess what's returned? The old stuff. <laughs> yeah. But they didn't stop the new stuff they pivoted to. They now have double jobs, double responsibilities, like double amounts of work. And they've never recognized that. They've never paused for a second. So my stuff like, when I get practical, it allows me to be tactical and actually change something. So like, let's take goals, for instance. A lot of people, I'll go come up with a bunch of goals. They'll come up with a big list. And then I'll sit down and I'll go, how many hours of free time do you have next week to execute these goals? Most people have no idea. And I'll go, oh, cool. Let's just do a simple time gap analysis. How much time would these goals take? How much free time do you have? And usually people have a deficit before they've even started a new goal. Like yeah, you went through that exercise. I, think I we did that about exercise yeah. multiple times. And so for me, that's another one of those practical things as a leader. Like, well, I'll tell leaders, like the reason you feel like you're out of time is you're out of time. Like, I don't like that's, it's not, it's not confused. Like that's the stuff that's frustrating about life is that I keep looking for a hack or a way to write books. And it turns out the only way is to write like a <laughs> lot and often. Like, and I want it to be different. I do, but I like, mm-hmm. I'll turn in my 10th book here in a couple of weeks and 
it's a matter of me sitting down and working through the process and the time, you know, the ideas yeah. come and I like, so I don't know that there's a shortcut to a lot of these things we want shortcuts to. And I don't know whether you, you want to talk about the specifics and if not, that's fine. But I remember in that conversation, after you listened to the John Lee Dumas episode, you went back, you looked at your numbers on a particular initiative that you had started and had been doing for yeah. a few years. Yeah. And you're like, this is producing nothing except a lot of headaches and a lot of frustration, uh, be as specific or non-specific as you yeah, want. So I can but, tell you, you know, I, what I realized when I looked at the numbers and I'm talking gross revenue, um, yeah. income, expenses, all the numbers like P&L, that about 80 to 85% of my expenses were generating 15% of my revenue. <laughs> and so, I mean, like that was shocking to me. Um, and I think what often happens, like the challenge, here's the challenge. Like, I'll just, let's relate it. Um, my dad's a pastor. Let's relate it to pastors for a second. Yeah. I think their version is when they're good at writing sermons. And so the sermon starts getting less and less and less and less time as they do other mm -hmm. things. Because, so if they looked at their schedule and they are like, okay, the sermon is like 40% of my responsibility. I, or I might be the only one. You might be the only one who preaches 40 times a year or whatever. Like, okay, it's 50% of my responsibilities and I spend 11% of my week on it. Like, ruh, mm -hmm. ruh. Like, that's not, mm -hmm. just because mm -hmm. you can do it. So for me, what happened was I had these five or six different verticals in my business and one was just kind of moving along. Um, and then like, I looked up and the, and it was carrying all the others. So it was a healthy exercise for me to say, if this was the only thing this business did, would it be a healthy business? Cool. By mm -hmm. itself. If this other thing was the only healthy, like only thing it did, would it be a healthy business? Okay, cool. I don't want one thing to be really healthy. That's covering up how unhealthy the other things are. Right. And so when I looked at it, I was able to say, Oh no, this is, this is not. And I get people will be like, Oh, that's a loss leader or whatever. But when you've got a small business, I'm not in the business of loss leaders. Like people tell me that like, Oh, don't worry about it. It's a loss leader. I'm like, I, there's like five of us. We don't have the room for like something to lose a lot of money. Like that's not what I'm trying to do. And so, yeah, it was really, it was really eye-opening, and it got me to change some things and to stop doing some things. And then the other thing that it made me do was I made a list of things I do because they're important and things I do because I, they make me feel important. Those mm. are two very different lists. Wow. Things I do that are important, things I do that make me feel important. It makes me feel important to say, oh yeah, I've got a big team. Like to have a big team, <laughs> like to say that, like, but is it like, do what, is it important? Do I, do I need that? Am I like, so I started to go through my, my business, through my life, um, through kind of the way I was living and go, which of these things are for my ego and which are the things I'm supposed to be doing? Like, which are the, you know, things that are actually really moving the business forward and are healthy versus just things that make me feel good at a dinner party when I say them. I am so glad you said that because we're going through that in real time this summer. We had a couple of staff departures and my instinct was to hire around them. And mm -hmm. then some of them, my team challenged me and said, no, nah, maybe we hire an agency. So if you look at our core team now, it has shrunk in the last three years from seven to four. Yeah. Four. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I think we're better for it. Yeah. Early days, but yeah. it's like, yeah. but it took me, like, it took me a month to swallow my pride. And I remember that we just flew in the, the remaining team members to do a little retreat up at my place. And we were sitting in this one booth at a restaurant, you know, almost yeah. like, you know, mom and dad and two yeah. kids kind of thing. And 
And it was, but I'm like, you know, we're going to be okay moving forward. And they're like, yeah, we're going to be okay moving forward. So we're all, but you have to be able to swallow that pride because it's wonderful to say, you know, I got a team of 10 people or we've grown to this or we've grown to that. We actually grew. Oh, but like, oh my gosh. Like, no, my version was, I'd be like, I would like to say like, oh yeah, follow my COO. He'll let you know. COO. Like I have, <laughs> like I had, like he's running the West Division. Like, come the on, West dude. Division. You know what I mean? Like, also known as that corner of the basement. Yeah, yeah. follow yeah. my COO. So it was <laughs> stuff like that where I just started to hear myself. Like one of the things I talk about a lot is that self-awareness is a superpower. And yeah. I think self-awareness is the ability, part of it is the ability to overhear yourself. So I started mm. to overhear myself and go, mm, that didn't, what? Who, why That's did I, good, why did I say? Why did I say that? Like, why did, I mean, like I overhear myself on planes. Like I noticed one day that I felt the need to tell people I'd hit the New York Times bestsellers list on airplanes. Strangers, I'll never see them again. But when I tell them I'm an author, I know they go, oh yeah, I wrote a book about dragons once or like, oh yeah, like yeah. you must be like not successful. Authors are kind of like, hipsters sure. that don't do anything. And I feel this temptation to try to work that into a conversation. <laughs> New York Times bestselling. Yeah, author. yeah, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. and you're yeah. like, come on, like, why do I need this person's <laughs> approval that badly? And like, where am I not getting it in healthy ways in other parts of my life? And like, so I think overhearing yourself is a really interesting way to go. Is that the person I want to be? Um, and why, you know, what am I getting out of that? I, what am I getting out of that is a powerful question. Like, what That's am I getting out of that? That's a great exercise. You know what? Because I've, I've caught, I didn't have language for it, but I think I've caught myself overhearing myself saying things. And I'm like, Ooh, that's like a little, it's not good, man. Like this is really who you want to be like, come on. Well, and everybody does it. And so then, so, so then what happens is I think you start to anticipate moments where you want to be ready. So I know, Mm. for instance, if I get invited to some mastermind, like, influencer thing, I'm going to feel insecure. Like I'm going to, like, I'm going to show up and somebody's going to mention something. I'm going to feel like I got to say something big or whatever. So now I can be a little more prepared for that. I can go in and go, I'm going to ask these three questions of the people I talk to there. Like, I'm going to be curious about other people. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I know I'm going to be tempted to say this phrase. Like, I know, like with the book launch, same thing. I know I'm going to be tempted to assign my identity to the book launch. Like it's going to happen. Like I know it's going to happen. I've launched, this will be my ninth book. Like it happens. Like I'm going to feel insecure. I'm going to be grumpy the week before. So what am I doing against that? You're going to watch those Amazon charts like a hawk and the Nielsen book scan. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's about going, if I pay attention. And then here's the other thing. Like I'm obsessed with wisdom. Like that's the big thing right now I'm working on. I'm obsessed with wisdom because I'm told it's worth everything even though it costs you all that you have. So then I made mm-hmm. a list. I was like, what does wisdom cost me? I'm told that in Proverbs 4. Wisdom like, is supreme. Get it, even though it costs you all that you have. So I was like, well, let's make a list of what it'll cost me. It costs me my ego. Because to learn from somebody else, I have to sacrifice my ego. It costs me humility. Um, it costs me time. It costs me money. It costs me awkwardness. Like, So then you can go, where am I paying these things? And if I'm not paying time against wisdom, I don't get to be wise. Like that's mm. just, if I'm not putting hours against writing, not putting hours against thinking, not putting hours against making time for you and I to talk, you and I could easily say, we're too busy. We don't have like, but we both go, nah, that's a wise half hour for me. It's helpful. It's encouraging. It's uplifting. I'm going to pay that half hour cost because I know there's wisdom there. So for me, that sent me down this path of, 
okay, as a leader, where are you, where are you paying for wisdom right now? And if mm. you can't go, and if you go like, oh, I sometimes listen to this on the treadmill, yeah. it's like, that's 11 minutes of wisdom. You'll be 11 minutes smart. Like, and I think as leaders, we hold our breath. We had a wisdom season where we went to college, we went to seminary, whatever. And then we think we have to hold our breath. Or and you then, have to be the fount of wisdom. It's like, where did that fount. come from? Or you think somebody is going to give you time for it later. No one is going to make time for you to gain wisdom. You like wisdom costs you bravery. Wisdom mm. costs a leader going, I don't know right now. Let me think about that. Let me work on an answer. Let me get back to you versus I'm going to spout this idea in this meeting because I don't want to look like I don't have an idea versus like the bravery of I don't know yet. Let me get back to you. Like that's a brave sentence for a leader to say. Mm. And so for me, that's where I'm like, dude, if I spend 200 hours 300 hours, 500 hours, whatever, seeking wisdom and, and really leaning into it. I know next year I'll be wiser. Like, uh, like mm. it'll be impossible for me to not like, cause I didn't spend five hours on it, 500 hours on it last year. And so that's the thing that I'm really passionate about. And I want to be 60 and have 10 extra years of wisdom because I actually treated it like it was valuable which at least in my faith perspective, I'm told over and over and over and over again, whatever you do, get wisdom, whatever you do, whatever mm-hmm. you do, whatever you do. Mm-hmm. My life wasn't lining up with that. So it's fun to say I was getting it, but my schedule didn't show that. Like my mm-hmm. attitudes, my behaviors, my actions didn't show that. So I hope five years from now, I've invested in wisdom and continue and I'm, I'm reaping the benefit of that. You know, I wonder, I'm so glad you shared that. I wonder if there's another temptation, particularly, you know, you've written eight or nine books, I've written a few, and we're seen as, quote, experts. And I walked out of my month off this summer, and I didn't have a ton of lessons, but one of them was, I want to be less of a teacher and more of a student. Less of a teacher, more of a student. I want to have my mouth closed and my notebook open more often than I want to be the one speaking with you know, people taking notes if they do such a thing. And I just think it's so easy to get fooled into thinking because so many people look to you for answers and to think, well, I always have to be the guy with the answers. No, how about I be a student? And in very unlikely places, not just from well-known people or podcast guests or famous people or New York Times bestselling authors, but like, you know, pastor of a local church, just sit down, have a coffee, connect, chat, listen, be the student, not the teacher. That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, for me, you know, for me, I guess I look at it and say, okay, how do I, how do I pay attention to them enough versus just waiting for the next thing to say, um, you know, waiting for oh, the yeah. next thing to kind of wow them. Um, and the other thing is, far, as far as like saying the answer, because of our culture, like the reason celebrities tell you their opinions on um, politics is because they got asked and nobody likes to disappoint anybody. So if you ask me, I'm going to say something versus saying, you know what? I really haven't done research on that. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to bypass. But like when somebody puts a camera in your face or a mic, like you end up saying an answer. So I've worked hard. Like if somebody says to me, how do you find a children's book illustrator? I say, I've never done that. I know there's some great resources. And I know these three illustrators have done that. These three authors have done that you should go talk to them. Like they would be Mm -hmm. great at answering that question versus I want to serve the person. So I'm going to say a bunch of words. And for me, I'm trying to get better at that because I like the sound of my own voice and I'll I'll ramble if I'm not careful. And you, if Carrie, if you said to me, 
what do you think are the three best parts of hang gliding? I'd be like, well, you know what? I got to say, number one is probably the view. The view is stunning. <laughs> I've never hang glided. The correct answer is, man, I've never gone hang gliding. That would be fun though. Like, uh-huh. Oh, that, that's a good word. And you know what? Pastors in particular, but business leaders too, everybody with a public profile is supposed to have an opinion now. And yeah, sometimes it's like, I don't know. It's a good answer. Yeah. That's a full answer too. I don't know. Let me get back to you on that. Like I really, mm-hmm. like, I or really talk to her, talk to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's an expert on that. So if yeah. somebody said yeah. to me, okay, I, I'd really love to learn more about leadership on your podcast, John, I'd say, you know, Carrie, my friend, Carrie Newhoff, like He's led groups of people of different sizes for decades. You should check out his podcast. If somebody said, I want to grow my own podcast, I'd say, have you heard of John Lee Dumas? Like he, man, he really, I have a podcast. I do. Mm -hmm. I can't help you grow yours. Like, but John Lee Dumas, man, he's got a system and he's like, I think that's fun where you get to like point. And there's something so great of when you don't try to think you have to do it all. Like mm. my brother runs a nonprofit. So when somebody asks me about nonprofits, I go, have you, you're going to love my brother. Let me connect you with my brother. He's right in that zone. He's done that for 12 years. Like, so I think that's fun too, because it takes the pressure off you to feel like you have to, and you can hear yourself tap dancing when you're talking about something you know nothing about. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know a lot about goals and you got a brand new book, which I've had the privilege of twice reading, once to endorse it and once to, uh, get ready for this interview called All It Takes is a Goal. And, you know, as I was rereading, John, because goal setting seems so big and in the future, and we're going to break it down a little bit, but I noticed that there is a uh, parallel. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've misread it. In the way you think about goals versus habits. And I want to start there because you're a big habit guy. Like you have your routines, you got your, your rhythms and everything. What in your mind is the difference between a goal and a habit? Well, I mean, I always tell people, I don't really care which word you use as long as you're getting the stuff you want done. So, cause I <laughs> yeah. had, I heard somebody once say like, I hate the word goals. I don't believe in goals. And I was like, what do you believe in? They were like commitments. And then they described <laughs> what was a goal. So like, I try to not get stuck on the nomenclature. Um, for me, the, like one of the big differences about a habit versus a goal is that a goal is often singular where a habit mm. is repetitive. So I, I'm not making a habit of trying to buy a mountain house. I'm not making a habit of trying, you know, to, to make a certain amount of money in a year or like there's, there's, there's differences where a habit, I'm just, I'm getting to something that re- repeats itself. It becomes part of my lifestyle. The other thing is that I'm learning to be flexible with my habits. I get too rigid with habits. That's where I like, I kind of can get compulsive with it where I go, well, I didn't get my 17 minutes in today. So the whole day is shot because Mm -hmm. it's the habit was so rigid. So I like the flexibility of goals. So for instance, I'll tell people have 15 different ways you can accomplish that. So on the days, like you mentioned in this interview, you'll read on a Kindle, like you'll read on Mm -hmm. a Kindle because you can't do other stuff on a flight. That's you having a list of actions that fit your learning bucket versus as a habit, I always have to read this the same way every day to make sure the habit sticks versus going, regardless of I am where I am, I can move this thing forward. I can move this thing forward. That's been powerful for me about having goals that are flexible enough that I don't need to trigger the habit loop for me to do them. In fact, my world is, you know, 
when Ellie says, I want to play pickleball with you tomorrow, if I had the habit of, I'm sorry, I write from eight to 10. Like I just, that's mm. my habit. I always write from eight to 10. And if I don't write from eight to 10, like I won't get the writing done. The rest of like, I had a flexible goal of my real goal was I wanted to go to lunch with Ellie before she went back to college. When she suggested pickleball, the goal completely changed. It just pivoted over to like, no, let's go play pickleball. We don't have to go to lunch. I'm, my real goal is to spend time with her. So I think sometimes for me, goals are really flexible. Hmm. Yeah. So let's break that down. You have different categories of goals. You have, you want to, I'm, I'm going to let you talk about those. So when you think about goals, there's three different categories. Yeah. So here's the metaphor I like to think about. If you imagine a ladder, 12 foot ladder, and mm -hmm. that's how most people look at goals. They only have a rung at the bottom and a rung at the top. So they say, Carrie, I want to start a podcast. Carrie, I want to, you know, go to Italy. Carrie, I want to make a million dollars. I want to write a book, whatever. And then they don't have any rungs in the ladder except the bottom one, which is the, mm. I've had the goal. And then they look up and, and they think, okay, I just have to jump. I have to go for it. I have to try to grab that 12 foot, which is two feet taller than a basketball rim. And then I have to pull myself up where my version is, what if you had a ladder where there were six inch rungs every six inches, like every six inches you had a rung. Could you climb to the top of that ladder over time pretty easily? Like you probably, you probably could. You could probably, before you notice it, realize, wow, I'm at the, I'm at the top of this ladder. Like I did mm -hmm. that difficult thing. So most people have a really hard time taking this big vision they have and then translating it into small trackable daily things they can do. And so that's where for me, easy goals, middle goals, and guaranteed goals come in mind. So for instance, I was uh, talking to a friend the other day, Anthony O'Neill, and he wants to hit a million subscribers on his YouTube channel. That's been his goal, his team's goal. I would never at the beginning say, okay, you got two rungs, hit a million subscribers and start the channel. Good luck between. Yeah, and I yeah. would never, I wouldn't even call that a guaranteed goal yet. But as he's climbed the ladder over time, by the time you get to the middle of the ladder, like that's happening. He, like I had him print out a photo of the million plaque and put it next to the 100,000 plaque he had already gotten. Like he's guaranteed to hit that because he's already climbed that ladder bit by bit by bit by bit. I'm guaranteed to have a 10th book done. Not because I said, here's my huge goal, but because I said, okay, I want a lot of rungs. Now imagine, mm -hmm. Carrie, if I only had one rung at the top of the ladder that said, finish the 10th book. Every day of the year that I work on that, I feel like a failure because I didn't finish it. I didn't finish the goal. Now imagine though, if one rung says 200 words and I write it, what, what if run, one rung says, talk to Carrie about the subtitle and I, and I climb that and I climb that. Every day I get to finish something and I feel successful. I look up at the end of the year, I have my 10th book done and it wasn't magic. It was just a process. And so that's what I mean by easy middle guaranteed is that you climb the ladder in a way that it's easy to climb. Well, and that's that's why, you know, there's such a link in your thinking between habits and goals, because, you know, you write almost every day and you're always writing something. You've narrowed that gap between your last book and your next book. Yep. And you talk and all it takes in a goal about almost, you know, and it's not hubris, but the inevitability of selling a million books. Yeah. Do you want to explain the math on that? Because I think, you know, you're right. If I sit here, never written a book or I've written five, you know, I think I've sold... 250,000 books or something like that. But like, I don't have a goal to sell a million books. Yeah. Now I'm going to write a few more, God willing, all that stuff. But how can you say I'm guaranteed to sell a million books? Well, I didn't make the goal at the very beginning of the goal. That would be right. ridiculous. Like if <laughs> I, you be. know, culture teaches us go big or go home. If, you're, if your yeah. goal doesn't scare you, it's not big enough. 
But unfortunately, that stops a lot of people's goals. Like that, Mm -hmm. a goal is already a challenging thing. Don't make it even more challenging. And I'm fine with you having a big goal. I just want you to actually get there. So for me, I made that goal when I was X amount of years into my writing career. And I could say, wow, I think we're, I was in the middle. I was in the middle of the ladder. It was, I could Mm -hmm. see the top. Mm -hmm. Like at the bottom, I couldn't, it was a hundred foot tall ladder, Carrie. I couldn't, if you said to me, there's a thousand foot tall rung up there. Can you read what it says? I would be like, dude, I just have a blog. Like I'm like, (laughs) I'm 32. I've never even written a book. And you're like, you gotta, there's the, that's not encouraging. If somebody said to me, okay, you'll get to be on global leadership stage going to take like 15 years and you're at the start, that would have discouraged me. I couldn't Mm -hmm. have climbed that ladder, but I didn't say that to myself. Nobody said that to me. I remember I did a book signing line once with John Maxwell, which is a huge mistake. He's amazing, but it's a mistake because you sit there by yourself Why a hundred people buy his book and you feel like a complete loser. So like people would get out of line with armfuls of his book and go, hey, John, I like your blog. Like not in a buy something kind of way, but I like your blog. And they'd get back because they didn't want to lose their spot. You made me laugh. Yeah, thanks. A dude walked up, (laughs) tapped me on the shoulder and said, 10 years, buddy, 10 years. That wasn't encouraging. Now it was true, but it wasn't encouraging. So for me... Now that I'm in motion and now that I, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of my ladder, I've done some easy goals. I, I wrote a blog. That's pretty easy. I, I wrote my first book. I was a little harder up the ladder. Wow. I wrote my fourth book, my fifth book. I'm in the middle of the ladder. Like now I have a writing career. What? Like I didn't have a writing career book one. I got $30,000 after mm. taxes that's and agent fees. That's 13 grand. And people would come up to me at work and be like, you going to quit your job? And like, if you won 13 grand in a lottery, no more to go. You moving to Mexico, man, just gonna, (laughs) you did it, dude. 13 whole grand, like, woo, Cancun, let's go. And so for me, when I'm in the middle of the ladder, I look up and go, I think I could do a million. Like, I think I'm at like 860 right now. Like, I think I, I can do a million. I control that because I'm going to keep writing. What I don't control is my, this next book will sell a million. I don't control that. I really Mm -mm. don't. Like Mm -mm. I control a lot of hustle. There's things I do control, but I don't control a single book selling a million. But I do control at this point, knowing what I know about the middle of the ladder, I'm getting to a million. Like that's, that's just math at this point. Yes, that's if you happening. keep writing, it's just math. Plus yeah. your back catalog, keep selling, yeah. so et for cetera, me, et cetera. Yeah, that's what I mean by a guaranteed goal. Like that's guaranteed to happen. And then the flip side of that would be, if you, you, you're a cyclist, if yeah. you um, rode a thousand more miles this year than you did last year, you're guaranteed to be a better cyclist. Like that's not, you can't go, I don't know. I hope so. Like, no, you did a thousand more miles in the saddle. Like you're a thousand miles better. Like that's a guarantee carry. And so mm-hmm. like, that's what I mean by guarantee is taking some of the magic out of it and going, no, no, this, like, this is happening. Like you're gonna, right. like, this is gonna, like John Lee Dumas, like that episode is all about guaranteed goals where he was like, hey, here's the, here's how it works. Here's the system I built. Like he, he didn't say in that, like, yeah, I have no idea how any of it happened. He does the opposite. He goes, here's how it happened. I'd love to teach you. And I, I love that approach. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you know, when I started this podcast, I thought as a crazy whim, maybe one day before I die, it'll be a million downloads. I never guessed 30 million. But if we keep doing this six episodes a month, we keep getting great caliber guests. We keep serving our audience. 
And, you know, God willing, I can do this for a few more years. There's almost an inevitability to 40 and an inevitability to 50, yeah. right? Unless there's a massive disruption in the industry well, or something that, like that. Well, and if that, I mean, all bets are off. But yeah, I can't that's exactly base my it, life off, you like, know? all bets are And there'll be pauses. Like, there was a pause for COVID. Like, for me, mm-hmm. like, with public speaking. But, like, I'm, you know, I worked beyond that pause. And so, like, I can't control that. But there's some things I can control. That's what I want to lean yeah. into. Yeah. What is a chaos zone, John? You talk about a chaos zone. So there's I so where that came from was I met a lot of people who are high performers, but they weren't high achievers. And what mm. I mean by that was they were capable of lots of potential. They just it was sporadic. They didn't string it together. We've all every leader on this call has felt that way or worked with somebody that way who was you know, just because you're a high performer doesn't mean you're a high achiever. And so I started to study why that happened. And the reason why it happens is that high performers ricochet between three different zones. One end is the comfort zone. We all know the comfort zone. It's got a mm-hmm. ton of conversation around it, a ton of press. But the zone that really cripples more high performers than any other zone, in my opinion, is the chaos zone. And the chaos zone is where you try to do too much. So what happens mm-hmm. is you're in the comfort zone. But then you get inspired, you hear you know, a podcast, you read a book, you go to a conference. Not writing my book, not writing my book. Oh, today I'm going to gonna write do my the book. whole thing in a month Good. and I'm going to like, I'm doing it all. Like, and you go, I'm going to learn yoga and pay off debt and date my spouse and I'm going to travel more. And you try to do it all and it all falls apart. It's the chaos zone. I relate it to the rabbit and the, ha- the, rabbit and the tortoise story, the old fable by mm. Aesop, where he only had two gears. He was taking a nap by the side of the road or he was sprinting. He had no middle gear and he mm. lost the race. Now, the, tur- the tortoise had a middle gear. He, he kept making steady progress, which is the potential zone, which is in between those two kind of opposite ends of the pole. It's kind of the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot, not too cold. It's just right, where you make steady, deliberate progress over time and you accomplish a lot of things because you're in the middle of your potential. Okay, that's super helpful. So if someone wanted to set an easy goal, what can you give us some examples, you know, hittable easy goals? Someone yeah. wants to work their way up the ladder. What's at the bottom of the ladder? Yeah, so okay, let's we're on a podcast. Let's say you want to start a podcast. So yeah. a hard goal would be I'm going to record my first 10 episodes. An easy goal is I'm going to brainstorm a couple names of the podcast. I'm going to find three podcasts I like. I'm going to listen to a couple of their episodes. I'm going to take a little bit of notes. I'm going to read John Lee Dumas's book. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, and I'm going to set a time frame. I'm going to do the first one for a week. So for the first week, all I'm doing is Googling possible names. All That's all I'm doing. Second week, all I'm doing is listening to episodes of other people's podcasts. That's easy. That's easy. And all of a sudden you go, okay, yeah, I think I, I think I want to do this. And what you're doing, Carrie, at every level, you're figuring out what price you want to pay. So if I, if somebody tells me, John, I want to write a book, and I go, well, why don't you read uh, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott? Like, that's a really fun way to kind of get into writing. And they go, no, I don't, I'm not going to do it. Well, you're not going to do the other stuff that's even harder. Like, if you won't do the, yeah. the on-ramp to the goal, you're definitely going to hate the other stuff. But so for an easy goal, like, that's an example. Another example would be, okay, John... I want to run a marathon. Awesome. That's an awesome goal. Why don't we find an easy way to do that? Why don't you look up three shoe stores in your town? Why don't you go get fitted for a pair of sneakers? That's not hard. Like everybody on the planet can go get fitted for a pair of sneakers. 
why don't you just Google, not join, Google, are there running clubs in your community? Is there a running club in Toronto that has some slower paces you can do? Why don't you, you know, read one book about how to pace your V2, whatever, like, all right, cool, versus I'm going to run every day this week. Because that's not sustainable, especially when you have no momentum. And here's the other thing, Carrie. At the start of a goal, a goal is fragile. A goal is mm. so fragile. And you have to give it time to get strength. So another example of that would be, if you were starting a podcast or writing a book, I wouldn't share those ideas too fast because they're probably not strong enough to stand under scrutiny. They're probably yeah, a not lot ready. of people are like, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. And they post it immediately on Instagram. And two months later, they've gained 10. Yeah, yeah, it's not, but it just wasn't strong enough. It was fragile. Mm -hmm. And so you want it to gain some momentum so it has a fighting chance. And you can say, okay, hey, this is going somewhere. This is strong enough now. And so that's what I mean by easy goals. It's a short time frame. It's inexpensive. Um, you don't have to change your whole life to do it. If, you're, if your goal requires 12 hours of free time a week, that's not easy. It's, real, it's really not. If you, if you say to yourself, I have to find 10 hours to write this week and you're a busy you know, parent, it's, it's not happening. If you say, I'm going to find three ways to write for half an hour this week, it's 90 minutes. You got a lot of minutes in the week. You can probably do that. Like That's easy. Like Build up some rhythm. Can I give you an example? And you, you test this out. So yeah. you know, I've been saying for a while, I got to lose 10 pounds, whatever. And uh, last year, 2022, in the spring, I got pretty motivated. I've been following this guy, Rob Carpathios is his name, on Instagram for a while. He has this ditch your dad bod thing. And I'm like, that's it. I'm, uh, I'm joining. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in. So it's a virtual training program. And I had my discovery call with him. And, you know, he works out with weights and a home gym and the whole deal. And I'm like, look, here's a couple of things. Number one, I live in the middle of nowhere. So me to go to the gym, that's a two and a half hour endeavor. It's just not going to yeah. work, right? It's just, I'm not going to make that kind of time. Secondly, I'm on the road half the time. So if this doesn't work, like I'm eating in restaurants, I can't do meal prep every Sunday and like yeah, weigh my yeah. chicken to the gram, yeah. like some of these guys and do, don't right? don't fly with your chicken. That's weird. That's yeah, weird. That really weird. Like Carrie, if you're on a flight with cooled chicken, like, no, that's too, that's too far. I was having visions of my emotional support animal, but that's another thing. Okay, yeah, anyway, yeah. the and emotional support And you have to eat them chicken. in your hotel. In this story, yeah. you bring a chicken on as an emotional, and then you eat it at the Hyatt. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. It's not going to work. So I'm like, that doesn't work. It's got to fit into my lifestyle. And I said, he said, well, you can work out in hotel gyms. And I'm like, sometimes I have a really nice hotel, and sometimes it's a broken elliptical. Like, yeah. it's yeah. not going to work. So he said, we can do body weight training. I'm like, great. So anyway, for about 16 months now, 17 months, we're doing body weight training. I've had a few up and down. So it's mm -hmm. like squats, push-ups, the whole yeah. deal. I'm on a very, like I can go and have ice cream. Yesterday I had an ice cream cone and I was down half a pound this morning mm -hmm. because it has to stay within certain macros, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of nutritional freedom. Bottom line, it was very replicable. I could do it. It was really hard at first doing those workouts. Oh, he starts you at three a week and then you move to four. And long story short, I ended up uh, down 20 pounds, got my little 20 pound plaque. It's oh, awesome. Nice. And he kept saying, it's inevitable. Like if you yeah. just work the program yeah. and it worked into my lifestyle. Yeah. So, you know, I don't even go to the gym at a hotel. I just put a towel down on the floor yeah. in my room and that's where I do my workout. It's very sustainable. That's how you start with an easy goal, kind of moves to a middle goal, and then eventually you get guaranteed like, yeah, you do this and you're going to lose 20 pounds.
Exactly. And he didn't say to you at the start, I need a 16-month commitment. Like, he didn't no. say, like, Carrie, you need to sign a 16-month com-. Like, that would have been like, oh, I can't do that. And he yeah. didn't say, you're going to have nine workouts. You're going to have... No, that's exactly what I'm talking about. He said the word inevitable. I say the word guaranteed. Um, yeah. And my ver- and I talk about that in the book. My buddy who owns a CrossFit gym gave me a CrossFit workout. He knows I travel. So I have a 30-minute in the hotel room workout where it is body weight. Right. And before that, before I had the freedom of flexibility, again, if you were so ri- like rigid gr- goals are fragile goals. So if you said, if he said to you, you have to work out in a hotel gym, you would do it less. But what happens for me is I go, I got 30 minutes and I can do pushups and I have a chart mm-hmm. and I can write them down and then I can text him for some accountability. Like, and then I can do it. Um, t- today I did my 85th CrossFit workout of the year. Wow, um, and so I and I know that because I'm tracking it, and I know you know, and I make it fun too. I listen to an audiobook while I'm doing it. The things Same. you do, I'm like I get to listen to whatever music, and I pick my favorite room. The first year I did it on the porch. Yep. This year we renovated our family room. I'm doing it in there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you yeah. find ways to enjoy it more and more and more and more, and and that's what I mean. Like it's I, again, I think sometimes we we want it to be really, really big right out of the gate. And that's, I get that. That's fun. It's sexy. It's, it's shiny, but I'm more concerned with, does it lead to long-term change? So you 16 months later is way cooler than if you bought some crazy thing and had a great three weeks and never get it, did it again. And Tony was mm-hmm. like, Hey, why is that? What are you going to do with the Peloton? Peloton? You're like, oh, I'm about <laughs> to use it again. I'm about to do it. Don't just, don't worry about it. I'm about like, that would be frustrating where this guy, you have the mm-hmm. exact opposite experience. So it sounds like he's, yeah, he's exactly what I'm talking about. What else about the framework, the easy middle guaranteed goals do, is it important for leaders to understand? Well, I think it's important. Um, I talk about in the book, reading the book, backwards because nobody dreams of easy goals. So it is important Mm -hmm. to have that. You didn't dream of, I can't, I want to lose half a pound. That's my dream. That wouldn't (laughs) have motivated you. It's important to have the big thing. So the 10 pounds, the 20 pounds, whatever it is, the plaque, it's important to have that. So as a leader, you have to have that vision. Like you can't pitch incremental change to a team and think they'll be excited. So like Mm -hmm. you can't say to them like, Hey guys, we're going to change things by 3%. It's going to be amazing. You have to pitch the big vision and then kind of go in reverse and then build the small steps along the way. Cause nobody gets excited. Like nobody says my goal is to learn 10 Italian words. No, their goal is I want to speak Italian. And then Mm -hmm. they kind of figure out, can I learn 10 words today? Can I learn 20 words today? Like, so as a leader, you have to be the one that paints that picture of, of what's possible, of the vision, and then translate that into, okay, here's the steps along the way that we're going to do to get us there. Here's where we're headed. Here's how, you know, and then you have to touch the goal a lot of times. If we're just talking about leadership purely, you have to touch the goal more times than you think. You really mm-hmm. have to, because you can't assume people remember it. You can't assume people are tracking it. You can't assume you know, it's being taken care of. I, you know, I'm talking to a team. This is my third time I've talked to them in September, this big multi-billion dollar company. And they, uh, they know, and we're talking about this, September U is smarter than January U. So we're doing a big Mm. event in September to reassess. Let's review where we are. What have we learned? What do we change? Like, here's what we thought was true in January. What's been true the last seven months? What do we need to do? So I think as a leader, 
goals you can't goals you can't just set and then hope they you know kind of work like Keith Cunningham who wrote that book The Road Less Stupid. I <sighs> love that he said there's no such thing as passive income in the same way that there's not passive marriages or passive health. Mm. Everything takes active effort. Now I think yeah. there's residual like you build up yes. stuff like there's residual but there's not a passive goal where you set it and then forget it. And then it takes like motivation doesn't work that way. Habits don't work that way. Goals don't work that way. Um, you have to touch it a lot, especially if you're a leader. So John, money has been something that you've had an interesting relationship with. Mm -hmm. Talk about how money fit into your goal system. What I loved about the way you, you talk about it is I think a lot of us, we have certain areas where we're disciplined in our lives and we're good at our goals. Yeah. Right. Like I'm one of my goals for this year was positive kitchen. It's very easy to do. Just don't criticize when you're in the kitchen because I'm pretty quick to go like, hey, you know, we need we, we, we need to get this done. We said six o'clock at six oh five. Where is everything? And That's I'm like, a just like a that. jerk, just a jerk, like positive kitchen. So we've been doing fairly well on that. That's easy. But there's always like fitness was one of those for me. Yeah, I biked, but I out ate my biking. Right. Like yeah. that's not hard to do. Yeah. Pretty easy to out exercise a bad or out to eat a bad uh, exercise plan or whatever. So, um, yeah, you talk about money. Walk us through that journey and how that impacted you. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still very much in the middle of it where I'm looking at um, old beliefs I have or old soundtracks related yeah. to money. So um, for me, it was a topic I avoided. Like I tried to, to use your exercise example, I tried to out-hustle a bad budget. So like, mm. I, you know, instead of looking at the money, instead of dealing with it, I'd go, I can work more, I can do more, I can do more, I can do more, I can just make more, make more. And where somebody might go, yeah, but if you tweaked like three things in your budget, you wouldn't have to scramble so much. Like you wouldn't have to, it'd be like with you and biking, if you wanted to eat something terrible and you're like, I just need to, to ride 5,000 miles this week on my bike. And then I can, somebody might go, Carrie, you could tweak this other thing and you don't have to spend 5,000 miles on your bike. Like there's ways around this. So for me, that was a topic that I really avoided. I was really afraid of it. I joke that like, it's like spiders and money um, for me. Like, um, I feel like confused by it. And so I'm in the middle of really assessing what do I believe about money? Why do I believe that? Where did I find, you know, where did I learn that success is bad? Or where do I, where do I, you know, where am I self-sabotaging? You know, because I have a certain amount of money that I think is okay. And if I get too close to that, I have to kind of pull myself back. Um, That's a real thing. So, yeah. So I would say that was, but again, like what I like to do is make things goals because then I can do them. So you made Positive Kitchen a goal. Like mm -hmm. where I made, you know, one of the goals I made was to be less offended. And so I made a goal where I tracked that because I found myself being angry at things that didn't deserve the amount of anger I was giving mm. them. And so I was like, and then I heard Earl Nightingale say, essentially like the size of a man is directly related to the size of the problems he gets concerned with. And I was like, oh, I'm a small man. Like I'm a, like, like here's an example, podcasting wise. Somebody emailed me, was like, hey, we're, you're going to be on our podcast. And they're like, do you have a good mic? Should we send you one? And I took that as such a personal insult. Like, <laughs> I have my own mic. I know about mic. Like, it's a dude, sure SM7B. Yeah, do you exact, have any idea? Dude, my ego and my like bowed up and I had to pause and go, wait a second. So with money, I'm now in the habit of saying, this thing frightens me. Can I make it a goal? So the title of the book is All It Takes is a Goal because I think there's areas of our life where we go, my life would be better. My life would be different. I'd have more of my potential 
if I knew how to live in that space. So I want to mm -hmm. take the fear out of that and go, all it takes is a goal. What would it take for you to turn money into a goal or relationships into a goal or, you know, or your fitness into a goal versus a scary thing that's really big. So for me, like I'm working on money goals. I have a big guaranteed goal that I'm trying to work toward. I'm being deliberate. I've got small money goals that I'm working on. I'm talking to other people. Like I asked people, what are their broken soundtracks around money? Cause I wanted to learn from other people. One that really surprised me, a teacher said in teaching a broken soundtrack, we believe is um, you teach for the outcome, not the income. And she said, I hate that one because nobody mm. who prints children's books, set in the, the factory that prints textbooks doesn't go, remember guys, we're underpaying you, but you do it for the outcome, not the income. And she was like, screw that. I'm a teacher, but I'm going to figure out how to have financial freedom. Like I'm going to, I don't accept that to be a teacher means you're broke. I don't accept that. And, but that was a soundtrack in wow. her, her space. And then like, you can, I mean like pastors, oh my gosh, there's so much, there's so much money stuff that like, I think we, I mean, to hit the so past, many unhealthy scripts there. Paul had to learn how to be in poverty and with riches. Like it was, yeah. it, he said, I learned how to be in both. I think there's a ton of people that have over focused on the poverty part and have, have no, like have not spent a second going, how do I be okay with good stuff? Like, how do I be okay with success? Like, how do I, like, that's a tricky subject. So I feel like yep. I'm, I'm at the beginning of that journey. Um, but I think as leaders, we tend to, again, ricochet back and forth between ideas. And so I think when when people got really kind of stuck on prosperity, we ricocheted the other direction. Right, because so, we're so averse to prosperity, which I think that's that's not a bad thing to be averse to it. But then the other option is what? Yeah, yeah. So that's a thing I'm in the middle of right now. Yeah. So guaranteed goal. Mm -hmm. How do you know? When something is the ca a category, like a, a candidate to become a guaranteed goal, what is the threshold? Well, so for me, it's, um, do I have proof? Like once I've gotten to, once I've done an easy, once I've done a middle, like I have proof. So I'm turning, you know, again, I'm experimenting, I'm trying, I'm testing, I'm figuring out, do I want to do it? I'm also quitting goals. Like not every easy goal will turn into a guaranteed goal. There's things I try all the time that I go, that was dumb. That was, doesn't fit my life. Did not return the ROI I wanted to. Like, I've joked with you about this, like drinking a gallon of water a day. It's not a good goal for me. It's just not like, I hate In the bathroom every 20 minutes. I'll uh -huh. be in a 90 minute keynote and need to go to the bat. Like that doesn't fit my life, dude. For what? Like I tell a client, I know I'm trying to serve you, but ultimately my God is a water goal. Like I now, like <laughs> I don't deify my goals. So yeah. like if something doesn't fit, like the goal is for me, not me for the goal. So mm. I can tell something's going to be a guaranteed goal because I've, I've done some easy goals. I've put in some time. I've put in some effort. I might've even put in some money. I maybe invested mm. a little bit. Like mm. I don't, I'm not guessing there's a guaranteed goal. I have proof at that point, which is why it's inevitable. Like when you're a year into working out with this guy, you weren't like, I hope next weekend goes well. Like I, I might quit next week. And you're like, nah, this is, this is happening. Like mm -hmm. this is, this is, there was motion. an inflection point. At which yeah. I thought, oh, this program actually works. Just stick yeah. with it. And then it became a sustainable lifestyle. So what I say to people, like when, when people ask me specific questions, like, well, how do I know which will be a guaranteed goal? Or another specific question I get from people is, how many goals should I have? And that's a totally fair question. And they mm -hmm. want me to say 4.8, 5.7. But what I always say is, 
as many as you can. As many mm. are, are as helpful. So what I mean by that is have 10. If you've got the kind of lifestyle that can that benefits from 10, have two. Like I don't care how many you have as long as they're not competing. And what I mean by competing goals is if you said to me, John, I want to be a lot closer with Tony and my kids this year. That's a big goal for me. And I also want to travel 300 days by myself to speaking events. <laughs> I would be like, hey, Terry, I don't know how to tell you this. Those yeah. two goals are in direct competition. So for me, I think I don't know anybody whose life is so simple that they can only have one goal where they go, I'm a, I'm only going to focus on my health. I'm going to let my relationships kind of, good luck. Like I'm mm. going to, you know, I always, whenever I see a goal influencer online who's like really aggressive and really hardcore, I always want to like hear from their spouse. Like I always want to hear from their friends because I have this, I have this guess that they don't have a lot of relationships or the spouse is like, yeah, he's the worst. He gets up at 3 a.m. and we tried to go on vacation and he had to like he had to pick a resort based on the gym. And so it didn't have anything for my kids because it had to be based on the gym that it, the resort had. And you're like, Ooh, like, so I'm not trying to make my life like that. I'm trying to say, okay, how many goals can I do? How can I serve other people with the goals? How can I encourage my family to have goals? Like, how can I make it a healthy, really fun part of my life? And then, dude, the longer I live this way, the harder it gets to believe it doesn't work. So when mm. my ninth book comes out, I'm not, I'm going to have a really hard time telling you goals don't work because it's my, it's my ninth book. I didn't write books for the first 34 years of my life. Like, yeah. I got plenty of evidence of what doesn't work. 34 years. I got, I'm 47, I got 13 years of evidence of like, oh man, if you try this stuff. And then you couple that, I have this thing called the Guaranteed Goals Community where we teach people goals. I have hundreds and hundreds of real people that are like, oh, I got my, like one of my favorite stories in the book, a woman got her degree from the car rider pickup line. So mm -hmm. during the car rider pickup line, and as she picked up her kids, she would watch 15 minutes of a lecture. She would read a little bit of a textbook. And over time, she did that enough that she got her degree. So I don't, Amazing. I don't have to guess like, do goals work? And I think if I stay on this path 10 years from now, when we are talking and you've got a hundred million, you know, listeners on your, on your podcast that will go, yeah, goal, man, they, they work like they, mm. they, you know, that's, that's pretty fun. And again, that's not, I don't think it's hubris. I just think it ends up being proof and it ends up being encouragement. So like one of the things that people ask me about all the time is imposter syndrome. They go, how do you get over imposter syndrome? And the only way I know, like the only way I found is um, with work, with results. So when imposter syndrome gets loud for me and goes, you're not a real writer. Like, you're, what? You're not a, like this book. You're not a real writer. Like this other person's a real writer. You're not a real writer. I go, oh, this is awkward. But that that shelf has like nine books I wrote on it. Like, I feel like that's what writers do. Like I have a stack of I think I've done the thing. And so when you exercise for 16 months and some voice in your head that's discouraging goes, what are you even doing? You're not in shape. What are you like? You're not a real exercise person. Like, what are you even doing this for? Cause that happens. You'll go, mm -hmm. Oh, this is so awkward. This is my plaque. Have you met my plaque? This is my <laughs> 20 pounds off plaque. Like I'm, and then I don't feel like I'm an imposter. So I, that's the thing is that it becomes, it becomes this circle where you do a little bit of the work and you get the feeling and then you want to do more of it and you get the feeling you want to do more of it and you get the feeling. And I genuinely believe finishing a goal is one of the best feelings in the world. Like I really do. And so I always say like happy, busy people don't have time to hate other people. 
Like happy, mm-hmm. busy people don't have time to criticize people online. Like it's, I'm too busy doing cool, fun stuff. And like, I don't have time for it. Like, I love when somebody says, did you see that mean thing somebody said about you? I'm like, no, I, I don't have any idea about that. Like I was, I was uh-huh. writing a book today and they're like, do you want to know what it is? I was like, no, nah, I'm good. Like, no, why yeah. would you like, no, I'm good. Like, yeah, I don't need to go there. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I don't need that. Like, I'm, I'm good. So for me, it just becomes a really fun way to live life. And, and I don't, I don't want to stop it. Wow. Yeah. I love the idea of guaranteed goals. Uh, thinking of the inevitability of some things that's highly, highly motivating. I remember when we're fortunate, you know, we were able to pay off our mortgage and, um, watching it go down every month at first, it feels so impossible. Right. And then you're like, Oh, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then it's just gone one day. Dude. And you get to a point where you're, you're right, where it crosses over and you're like, no, this is happening. Like this is mm-hmm. no, this is real. It yeah. would I would crawl to the bank to pay this last check. Like mm-hmm. you weren't gonna get to where like you were five payments away and say to Tony, on second thought, um, yes, I think we should. I think I don't think we should do this. Or like Let's you weren't into that line of credit and just yeah, blow it all up. Yeah, ten, yeah, like ten payments away, you weren't gonna be like, Tony, hear me out. What about a horse? Maybe we should get a horse. <laughs> like you were, that was inevitable. And then like it yeah. happened and you're, and then when you have a guaranteed goal that happens, you get obsessed with other things. So that's the fun part about life is when you go, okay, what else? So I'll give you an example. That's kind of the reverse. This summer, Jenny and I were talking about a sports car. Like I've always wanted to have a sports car. Mm-hmm. I don't have a sports car. I've always wanted one. And she was like, you know, um, I think you'd be anxious in it. I think you would park it a million miles away. I think you'd be nervous every time you drove it that some teenager was going to hit it. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I could see that. And so then like a week later during July, when I was thinking, I thought, you know, what's weird. I just let my fear tell me what kind of car I drive. So I let my anxiety set the car limit. Like I said Mm -hmm. to my anxiety, Hey, is it, is it okay if I have a Volkswagen? And it was like, we'll accept that. That's an acceptable, like a nice little GTI. yeah. Yeah. But then I was like, what are other parts of my life and my leadership where fear is getting to set the day? Like, what are the other things in my life where maybe it's an amount of money you can make and you go, what's my capacity? Or maybe it's the type of leadership you get. But I don't want to live a life where fear defines what I'm capable of. And then I try Mm -hmm. to live slightly under that. I'd much rather go, yeah, I would be a little nervous about a sports car, but I'm going to work on that. I'm going to turn that into a goal because I don't want fear to say, you're more of like a like a Kia. Like, have you ever thought about like a Kia, John? Like, that's your level of stress that you can handle. Like, no, I'd rather elevate what I'm capable of in any area of my life and go, I made it a goal and now, now it's different. And there's other areas of my life where I've done well at that, but there's a lot of areas where I'm just now looking and going, ooh, okay. Okay, here's the last thing I'll say. I'm sure it'll be not the last yeah. thing. I heard my overheard myself the other day saying, I have plateaued in my speaking career fee-wise because I'm not a celebrity. So you and I both know celebrities who get five times what we get um, and do Q&As. So it's because they won a Super Bowl, whatever, they make a ton of money. They They don't do a keynote. Like, and I heard myself saying that to somebody and I realized, well, wow, that's a broken soundtrack. That really mm. is. Now, the three questions of soundtracks is, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it kind? It is true. It's true. There is a level to being a celebrity. Is it helpful for me to say that? It's not. Because what it mm-hmm. makes me do is not work hard. It makes me give up. 
Is it kind? Of course it's not. So what if instead I said, I'm going to create such good content and have such amazing customer service that I work around the celebrity level. I don't, it doesn't even, like I'm going to get around it. Like I see it, it's an obstacle. I'm just going to go around it. I'm going to figure out my way around it. Now it's a goal. Now I can do something with it. But again, it starts with that overhearing and going, wow, what did, what's the outcome of that thought? The outcome is don't try. Am I okay mm-hmm. with that? Like, am I at 47 okay with being like, okay, I've never like, I've never won a Super Bowl. I can't like, no, I'm not okay with that. Okay. Well, what's, what do I need to do with that? What, if I make it a goal, what does that look like? And then I can make it a tactical, tangible goal to actually like serve clients so well, they're excited to bring me back. And now Mm -hmm. we've got a bigger relationship and I can do that. Like this book is written with the attitude of what do I do with this on a Tuesday? That's all the stuff I teach, all the stuff I speak. I'm trying to think if I'm reading this, if I'm sitting in the audience, that's great. That's interesting. It's inspiring. But what do I do with it on a Tuesday? That's the kind of stuff I great like. Great preaching test too. Yeah. So like for me, I know I can turn that broken thought into a true thought. And then on a Tuesday, I can follow up with a client in such a great way that creates such a good experience for them that they're more encouraged to bring me back to speak again. Like that mm-hmm. I can do. That's a goal. Well, I love that we're having this conversation too, John, because, you know, you've mentioned humility or hubris a few times, but I think in the church in particular, there's a lot of people who either attend a church or work at a church who listen to the show. Um, there's a false humility that really, like if our God-given potential is here, we'll stop here, right? Like what's true about maybe the sports car is also true about my preaching ability or uh, where we're going to take the message that I feel I've been entrusted with or our leadership lids. And there's almost this fear of success or fear of size. And I think it was Irenaeus who said, the glory of God is man fully alive. And uh, I went to see John Mayer in concert. And the thing that amazed me is that guy doesn't hold back. Like no. he and his guitar are basically one. He's just out there. He, and doesn't, he's, look, he doesn't care if he looks weird either. He looks no. very weird a lot of I've he seen does. him in like concert. His tongue sticking out and <laughs> he's all into that stuff. It. Yeah. He's lost yeah. in the art. And I'm like, as a communicator, I got I to gotta get out there. Like I, as a question asker, as a writer, I have to get out there. I have to leave it all out on the field. And there's a part of me that holds back. And so it's going to be really interesting for me moving forward to think about easy you know, middle and then guaranteed goals when it comes to realizing the potential. So you die with it all out on the field, not holding back going, well, if I tried harder or I hadn't put those lids on, you know, because this can be used for really, really great purposes, you know? And, and I think, I think often, I mean, what are your thoughts on false humility in the church? Well, I just, I think, you mean, for me, I think of the, the landowner who gives out the five and the two and the one talent. Yeah. And I'm a double talent guy. Like whether that's two talents or five, I, you know, I'm not, I can't say, but if I got two, I'm going to double it. And then there's a party. So there's not a moment where you double it and the landowner who is God goes, oh, it was, no, you shouldn't have doubled it. I wanted you to only like one and a half it. Like, no, there's Mm -hmm. a party. There's a Mm -hmm. celebration. Like that's what for me, part of my message is like, let's dig it. Let's grab a shovel. You buried your talent. Like, let's go, let's go double it. Like, what does that look like? Where do you know, mm. let's go do that. Like, how do we ask and knock and receive? And, and I, I think that for me, that idea of the false humility comes back to, is God a good God or not a good God? 
Like if he's mm. a, if he's really a good God and he has your best in mind and he, you know, he is a father who gives amazing gifts. Like we're told we wouldn't give our kid a snake. Like, and we're humans. Imagine what God gives. Like, yeah. I feel like we really struggle with that. He is a good, generous, lavish God. And then, cause if he's not, if he's an okay God, like then, okay. Like a broken soundtrack. I had somebody the other day say like, I know God will provide enough. And I was like, no, he's not. We're not told he's an enough God. He's a runs over God. He's a cup runs over. Like that's the kind like, so when somebody says like, I know he'll provide exactly my needs. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible is mm. like, it's going to run over. It's going to be more than you need. It's going to be wildly generous. Like, so for me, I feel like when we pull back, we don't have a pullback God. Like we have a God that's like, no, let's. And if I pull back, there is like, for me to worry and pull back, because pulling back is worry. So for me to, mm. false humility, mm -hmm. for me to pull back to worry, the first thing I have to believe is there is no God. Like, cause there's no, like in that situation, there must not be a God. Cause I'm now God. Cause I'm worried. I can't right. do the thing. So then I go, ah, but I can see his hand a lot of places. I've seen the sunset. I believe in him. So, okay. There is a God, but he must not be that good because I can't give my heart fully to him. Cause I'm going to pull back and save some of it. Cause I don't really want to get hurt. But so for me, if I really believe in a wildly generous, passionate God, then like I'm going to go all out. Like I'm, I have to go all out. And as I go all out and go, I did the thing. It's like, he goes, that, there's even more. Like I, I won't, I won't out God him. Like when I go, I trust this thing. I'm building this thing. I won't have a moment where he goes, that was too big. Like you never, mm. you never see God once in the Bible say, I, I think you should play it safer. Like I'm not capable of that. I think you should pull back. Like it's hard to find an example wow. in the Bible where God's like, yeah. I think you should pull back. I can't handle that. Like if anything, I I feel like we go, here's this little gift. Like all like here's the funny thing to me. The only thing the boy with the fish and loaves did was bring them. We don't get a mm. single passage about his hustle. Like we just mm. don't. Like no. we he, we brought them. So my thing is like. I'm going to bring all the fish and all the loaves I have. And then I get to watch this miracle of how he uses it. Like, that's not on me. So how dare I go, here's how big the miracle can be, or here's how big it can only feed this amount. Like that's not on me. Like it's, I'm, it's really not. I say to people all the time, I'm the CEO of my actions, not the CEO of my outcomes. Meaning hmm. I'm going to act on these things. Like I'm going to, and then like what, what God does with them, God's going to do with them. And they're going to be bigger than I could imagine. Like they're always bigger than I could imagine. Hmm. So that's how, I mean, like from the church, like, yeah, I, I feel like we should be high performing. I think we should be deeply in love with the talents that we've given because they reflect the creator. I heard somebody the other day say, it's not arrogance to be confident in who you are unless you think you created yourself. I don't think I created, like, I don't think I created myself. Oh. So for me to celebrate the things I'm capable of is, is an homage to the God I believe created me. So I don't like, no, like that, you know, I can stumble in pride and ego and all those things, but like, nah, like I don't, I've played it small. It's not fun. Like I've done both. Like I know which one's a lot more fun. Well, that's a great place to finish, man. Whatever God gave you, don't hold back don't hold back. So the book is called All It Takes is a Goal. Oh, what came first, the podcast or the book? Did you have the idea for the book before you did the podcast? No, the podcast came first. Um, ah. 
the podcast came first and then the book came from not feeling like I was, li- I lived up to my potential in college. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do with that? Like those four years are gone, but the next 40 are available. Do I want to sit in that regret or do I want to live into my potential? And that's where the mm. book came from. Awesome. John, it's available everywhere. Books are found. Uh, where can people find you? And- uh, yeah. John Um, J O N A C U F F.com. And then, um, I read the audiobook. So if you're an audio person listening oh, yeah. to the podcast, 10 bonus stories. And then the pod, my podcast is called All It Takes Is a Goal. And you can find me all over the place on social media. Awesome. John, thank you. Thanks, Gary. Man, I enjoy John. And uh, we talk all the time. And I am thrilled to bring you conversations like that. And we got a lot more coming up for you. If you enjoyed that and would like more, you can get show notes and transcripts over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 596. We're also on YouTube. Lots of you are watching on YouTube these days, although audio is still like, I don't know, 10 to 1 or 100 to 1 people listen over watching. Probably 100 to 1, maybe 1,000 to 1. Anyway, lots of you listen and a few of you watch, uh, but we're over on YouTube as well. So you can check that all out. My website, kerryneuhoff.com, is a gateway to everything. And you don't even have to know how to spell that because if you get it slightly wrong, Google will help you out. And I got a couple things I'd love to get in your hands. They're both free. First, if you want to grow generosity in your church, go to engagegenerosity.com. I will give you my free guide on four steps to engage your church around money and generosity. And I would like, in partnership with Belay, to get their Power Productivity Guide to you for free. If you want to be more productive, and who doesn't, text CARRY to 55123. That's C-A-R-E-Y to 55123. So we got a lot of great guests coming up. I am so pumped for my conversation with Arthur Brooks. He wrote a pivotal book. His next book is with Oprah, which is fascinating. Dave Ramsey, Jenny Catron, Judah and Chelsea Smith, Mike Todd, John Christ, and a whole lot more coming up on the show. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss an episode. But next episode, Matt Tresseter. We talk about where bad leaders come from. It's super honest, how to deal with brutal feedback, secrets to a great one-on-one meeting, and why management is dead. Here's an excerpt. So I think a really important place to start on this conversation is where do bad leaders come from? Because I think it's unfair for us to think that a bad leader wakes up that day, or at least just say 99% of leaders don't wake up that day thinking, how do I make my people's lives terrible today? Mm -hmm. They just don't Mm -hmm. think that. So why do we have a huge part of the workforce, both in the workplace and within ministry, where people have Sunday scaries not looking forward to coming to work on Monday because of the relationship with their leader? The leader's not intentionally doing that. So I think it's because they're not equipped, the naivety Mm. thing. They've never actually been shown the way. They've never actually been shown the path. Or number two, they're not being intentional. They don't realize that them not checking in on a personal front or not providing feedback on a more coaching front, the damage that that's doing long-term. That's next time on the podcast. And because you listen to the end... Let me tell you about something cool. I am always trying to find new podcasts and that can be hard. I mean, there's a gazillion out there. I don't know that's quite the math, but it's close. And we started a Art of Leadership Network and these are curated shows. And I would love for you to follow them because you can hear great leadership content from hosts like Adam Weber, Chris Cook, Jenny Katrin, Tony Newhoff, Rob Meter, Kevin Jennings, and a whole lot more. All you have to do 
is follow the Art of Leadership Network on Insta, and you will always know where to find the leadership conversations you need. So just search for the Art of Leadership Network next time you're on Insta, or click the link in the episode, and we'll see you inside the network. And that's that little thing you hear at the very beginning where it's like, ding, the Art of Leadership Network. Yeah, that's a network. And we got a bunch of shows. Sean Morgan's on there, Brad Lominick, and a whole lot more. So check it out. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I so appreciate you. And I hope we have helped you identify and perhaps even break a growth barrier you're facing.